Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter Diager, and this is one of an ongoing series of interviews with people who were involved in Y2K from various perspectives for the podcast Y2K and Autobiography. I've been waiting for this particular interview for a fair bit of time, and the reason is very simple. Most of the interviews I'm going to do, I'll know their stories already because they're coming at it from the same angle that I was. They're technicians, they're technologists, they were people looking at the problem and trying to get it fixed. But there are other people who are involved as well. And Murray Campbell, our guest today, is a journalist with the Globe and Mail. And as a journalist, he has a story that I don't know anything about. I don't know what it was like for a journalist looking at this problem and then attempting to report on it. So, love to introduce Murray Campbell today. And the first question is, Murray, if you want to add anything else onto your intro, by all means. But I'm really curious what you were doing before Y2K became a topic for you, not for the world. Well, thanks for having me, Peter. I'm glad to, uh, to be with you. Um, the short answer is that I was in the newsroom in Toronto. Uh, I was largely keeping my head down. It was a time of management turmoil. And I think all of us reporters were just kind of keeping our heads down, going with flow and seeing what was happening, several pay grids uh, above us. So I was, I was probably doing general assignment, writing features, covering elections, um, and that sort of thing. But I, uh, I was not reading computer magazines. Let's put it that way. Fair enough. Uh, when did Y2K come to your attention? When did it come on your horizon? Difficult to remember. Um, as I say, I wasn't reading computer magazines. Um, I think I saw passing references to it, um, but it didn't it didn't fill me with alarm at what I saw, nor did it excite my curiosity greatly because I, I thought, frankly, this is a topic that's way too complex and way uh, uh, beyond my knowledge. Um, and I never, I never thought that I would uh, would uh, end up getting involved with it. So it's hard to pin down um, when I first um, uh, first heard about. It. Was it the early '90s, or is it towards the end of the whole story? Oh, it, it would certainly be the the late '90s. Um, I uh, there was a good deal of talk about the coming millennium for a, a range of uh, reasons, um, whether it was Druids dancing around Stonehenge or whatever. Um, but I can't remember any, anything, singling out anything to do with, you know, the, the difficulty of computers going from 9.9 to 00, zero uh, at that time anyway. So, so how did you get roped into it? How did you write your first story? Well, as a general dog's body uh, feature writer at some point, I think in early 1999, I was um, asked to uh, keep a watchful eye on millennium stories. And I say that's everything from, um, you know, businesses that had named themselves year 2000 or whatever uh, to uh, any Y2K uh, issues. So I think. Um, it, I was obviously assigned to keep an eye on it, and after that, I was left on my own. And it wasn't too long before I saw this Peter Diager quoted all over the place, 
and, um, and, and settled on. This looked very interesting, but you think late 1990s, it was a little while before journalists were able to Google everything and become instant experts on everything. It still actually required reading things and trips to to the library and finding books or whatever. So it was um, uh, it was not always easy to get up to speed on what was happening either here, down down the road or across the world. So uh, I think I probably remember doing some of the easier stories um, first about people with name changes, millennial car wash. What were they going to do about that? Okay, so you you've given the assignment. Keep an eye on it. You start doing some research. You, you've even learned the term. <laughs> you've known my name. Sorry about that. What were your initial thoughts? I think I was agnostic about the whole thing. I didn't know enough about the topic to be dismissive of it or to, uh, to you know, fill my boots with fear. Um, you know, I knew that by early 1999, some people, I guess you were among them, were saying that the problem that you had identified in 1993 with your article in Computing World had largely been solved. And I remember at one point thinking, well, I've come a little bit late to the party or that haven't I, if it's all been solved. But, you know, uh, there were other voices to, that were saying that this was this was going to be a um, a problem, and certainly a range of companies and uh, governments were snapping to attention and spending a good deal of money uh, on rectification or verification of their own computer systems. So I, I think I, um, I kept at it and tried to learn a little bit more about it. You and I had a, a few long talks in which you tried to. Uh, Try to make me understand some of the uh, the, uh, the basics about Y2K, um, but I think even I think all the way through that year, I I I was an agnostic. I I didn't know enough about the subject to be, to to dismiss the fears or to confirm the fears. And I think that's what connected us a little bit. I mean, I appreciated the fact that you were quite open with the fact that you didn't know enough to form a strong opinion. At any point, did you switch to believe that it was a serious issue? Yes, I thought it was. I, yes. I mean, in our conversations, I picked up and knew that it was indeed a, a serious issue. Um, but I was willing to buy into your point of view that if everything, everything, that everything was being done to mitigate the, um, the potential for damage. Um, so that I, uh, it's not that I didn't dismiss the possibility of, of a cataclysm on December 31st, um, but I took your assurances and I, uh, that it, much was being done. And I could see that, uh, you know, when I talked to people in governments and businesses, and I could see that they were spending a large amount of money. And my thought was, and to go back to your earlier question, was did I did I have an opinion on it? I thought, well, it can't be. There must be something to this. If all these um, entities are spending huge amounts of money um, to to fix something, um, I mean, it will not come as a surprise to you that there were 
there were voices out there that said Peter Diogor is just doing this for his own glorification and to um, and to um, hype up business for his um, his speak, speaking uh, events. Um, I thought, well, if, if that's the case, God bless him, he's discovered a, a secret weapon because he's getting all these companies to spend all this money. Uh, and if he's, they're doing it on the strength of one article he wrote or a few speeches he gave, he's a brilliant man, I should get him on my side. Murray, I'm a good speaker, but I'm not good enough to get an organization to spend $100 million fixing a problem that doesn't exist. I mean, this was one of the arguments I had quite often with people is that I'm a good speaker, but I'm not that good. I mean, I couldn't sell you a car if my life depended upon it. I'm not that type of salesperson. And, you know, I appreciate the fact that. Well, that was my, that was my thought, too, Peter. That was, that was my thought, too, that, uh, you know, there were, there would be editors or, or my colleagues in the newsroom who would say, oh, that uh, this is all about self-aggrandizement. And I would say, well, look at what the federal government is spending. Look what the Royal Bank of Canada is spending. Uh, it, there's got to be some basis for this. Um, and uh, but let's so let's monitor it and let's see where it's going. Uh, I never felt that I was pushed into taking a position about the issue. And I don't think in anything I wrote that I ever really did take a position uh, on the issue. I was I was trying in my own even handed way to reflect what was in my head, which was could be true, could be not true, but likely it was true, but it's not true anymore, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I get it. How'd you go about the reporting then? I mean, you're you're, you're doing your best to to stay not a not neutral, but you were weighing everything and and reporting on it from my perspective fairly. How did you strike the balance? Well, um, I mean, I guess that's second nature to most re reporters. Uh, I talk to you a lot. I would bounce things off you you were a really busy man and but you were very kind and generous uh with your time um i would every once in a while sort of get up my courage and to call other people in the computer business to say what do you think mostly i would talk to people at, at various companies uh who were involved in the mitigation and uh, get us get a sense of the scope of what they were uh, of what they were doing, um, I didn't find it, I didn't find it difficult to come up the middle, mm -hmm. because I, as I've said a couple of times in this chat, uh, I didn't know enough to to come down on either side. Um, it just was not in my knowledge sphere. If, if I were writing about politics or even God help us, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, I could say something more definitive. But uh, uh, in this case, I was I was trying to reflect what I was being told by people and what I could see in front of me in terms of the amount of money being, being spent. One of the difficulties in talking to reporters about Y2K was that we, we had to speak in simple terms. And if we really got into the weeds, you know, people's eyes would glaze over. And the problem when you speak in simple terms about a complicated story is that you're shaving off the edges. You're rounding the edges. You're not telling the complete story. And in a way, you're not telling the truth about what's going on. In other words, by simplifying it, you're giving it a version that isn't exactly accurate. But 
if you try and get accurate, you lose the reporter. Well, I was going to say, I, I, my sense of our chats is that you, um, let me just back up and say that is an elemental problem of all communication. Reporters are generalists. Most reporters, most of the time, are generalists. Um, and um, it is a problem of communication professionals uh, to be able to hone their message simplify the message and yet keep the core of that message to get it across to people who are not experts. After I left the Globe uh, in 2010, I spent time for my sins with the Crown Agency of the Ontario Government of Alton Electricity. And in my work day, I would deal with a lot of electrical engineers and um, who's second language was English, let's put it that way, the first language <laughs> was electricities. Um, and I spent a good deal of my working life trying to translate what they were comfortable saying to each other and trying to make it uh, understandable to, first of all, the, the minister's office uh, up the road, and secondly, and more importantly, to people who are actually paying our salaries. Um, it's, you know, and I learned a lot about communication at the time. You cannot dumb it down, as you say, so much that you're you're scuffing off the edges of the truth. But you cannot just simply talk in um, in the jargon that you would you would feel you could use easily um, uh, with your colleagues in the industry. One of the things a reporter will learn very early on is um, there's no such thing as a dumb question. There's only dumb answers. So even to this day, if I have friends who like to use acronyms, or I will say, sorry, what does ABC stand for? Um, because I don't know, and you're cutting me out of the conversation if if, uh, if you don't tell me what it's all about. So yeah, I have a phobia about people using jargon that cuts out um, generalists like me. So um, it's a it, the communications professionals learn to do that to get around that, and I thought you did it really well, Peter. I thought you were, you could you knew, you knew in, in dealing with me that you were dealing with a generalist uh, who used a computer and but didn't really care to know what was inside that computer, um, and um, and yet you got across the core message quite well. Yeah, well, th that was the goal in in the decade that I was working on that. That was. That was my role on this, was trying to communicate what was going on. You mentioned the newsroom earlier and the views of the other people. Did that view evolve very much during the conversation from when they began aware of it to the end and afterwards? What was the shift in their perspective of the issue, if there was a shift? I don't think it was really a shift about the core of the issue. As I said, uh, there were voices in a newsroom as there were in your immediate circle who would, who would think that this was all for the greater glory of Peter Diogger. Um And I would, I would simply say back to them what I just said to you, you know, these businesses and governments are spending huge amounts of money. It can't be for nothing. It makes sense to me that there, there, there will be an issue that computer programmers in the 60s were lazy and only used two digits instead of four. And, um, and they would be silent. Did the view change? I think the view changed only as the end of the year deepened 
and people could start to see that, oh, maybe this was going to be a real story, that maybe, um, you know, the apocalypse was was nearing us. So they started to get more interested in, in the story. For the, for the first part of the year through April, May, June, July, there wasn't an intense amount of interest. I never had trouble selling the story to the desk, but they weren't always incredibly seized with, um, uh, you know, uh, excitement by, by, by what I was uh, what I was sending them. I mean, I looked I looked back over my output of that year, and it wasn't that wasn't that much actually, quite frankly. And um, and not all of it went on the front page, which is which is the uh, the measure of um, uh, uh, the worth of a reporter. Um, I think it, they were like me. They said, yeah, okay, hand it in, give it to us, we'll, we'll run it. If we like it, we'll put it on front. If not, we'll bury it back with the classified ads. And we were working so hard to get excited. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You, uh, Sorry for that insider student. Yeah. But, you know, a, newsroom, a newspaper is... It's a small, it's a, it's, I mean, we used to call it a daily miracle. The, the, the Globe newsroom at that time would have been several hundred people, uh, three, four hundred people. Um, and the stories come in. There's a, editors who try and be the gatekeepers, but there's just so much going on at any given time. And most reporters are excited about their stories. It's a job of most editors to, say yeah 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 okay give it to me let me have a look at it and not get overly excited um, and they're the ones that have a small group who pick out the stories that go on front the next day and if if you know if uh, if you think you've done a, re a story really well and you come in the next morning expecting to hear to have, you know people throwing rose petals in front of you you're going to be very disappointed the most thing most that any uh, reporter or editor will say to another reporter is not a bad read. <laughs> uh, I know a little bit about that. I've written more than several thousand articles and you hand it in and you're hoping for the, the response and you get it very, very rarely. So I share a little bit of that with you. You, you were on a plane with me flying to Heathrow. Now, at the time, I was shell-shocked and weary and tired and jet-lagged and everything else. And we didn't really have a conversation about why you were on that plane. I know why I was there. Why were you there? Because um, I thought it would be a good story. Okay. Plain and simple. Um, I would make I would make <laughs> jokes with my wife who did not laugh and say, well, if I go down, I'll, I'll, I'll make front page. Um, one way or another, and um, I, uh, you know, it's it's it it it, it seems to me like it was a good story. My memory is that I was talking to you, and I asked you where you were going to be on New Year's Eve, and you said uh, at home in Brampton, in the family room with the family, and I think I challenged you and said, well, <laughs> you know. That's you can't do that. You got to be you got to be out something. Like, why aren't you in a plane or something? And then you went away and came back to me and said that you had had this you had this arrangement to fly from Chicago to London and 
did I want to come with you? Right. Okay. And I took it to my editor and took it to the editor in chief. And this is where they became, uh, they became actually quite excited. Um, uh, I don't remember what the cost of it all was, but it was reasonably, uh, you know, expensive, the, the airfare and uh, the hotel in London, et cetera. Um, but they got quite excited, maybe because they thought I was going to go down <laughs> into the ocean. But um, I think they just thought it would be a good, it would be a good personification of a story that um, had the tendency to be as dull as bits and bites, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, here was this the guy who'd made it popular, the prophet of doom, as you were one point in your career called, um, flying to London just to prove to yourself that uh, the issue had been defeated. Um, you had the confidence in your own um, belief that, that the issue had been surmounted. And uh, I just thought it would be a, you know, uh, I thought it would be a very good story. Uh, and I'm glad I was able to, if my memory is correct, I, I was glad I was able to push you into doing it. Yeah, well, I'll be honest, I don't remember that part. <laughs> but like I said, a lot of it is a blur. Okay. Here's what I remember, because it happened at several times. I was asked quite often by reporters, where will you be that night? And I had a standard pat response for them that was intended, crafted to be the human interest story, that I would be in a pub in Ireland quaffing a pint. And I even used the old phrase, quaffing a pint. And they then asked me, well, do you believe it's safe to fly? And the response, my response would be, absolutely, yes. I don't see a problem at all. And then it would twist. And it twisted at least a half a dozen times in the following way. Ah, Mr. Diager. So let me get the quote right. Despite the fact that you claim it's safe to fly, you won't be anywhere near a plane that night, correct? And I wrestled with that. And then this I distinctly remember. How do I... How do I work the media so that I can say something and do something so that my intent is clear and they can't mess it up? And I said, I know what I'll do. I'll get on a flight. And I remember phoning up United Airways and saying, I want to prove that I believe that it's safe to fly. Put me on a plane. Will you do that? Yes, we'll do it. You know, first class and all the rest. And they did it. And it was intended to signal that I have absolutely no concerns flying. And when you came on board, I said, well, I must have convinced at least one other person as well that it's safe to fly because here's Murray getting on a plane with me. So, but it, that was one of or the- you found somebody, Or you found somebody who was foolish. <laughs> How much insurance did you write? Say, or you found somebody who was foolish. <laughs> that too. How much insurance did you write? Um, as far as I know, not, not enough probably. <laughs> Okay, January the first. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't remember. No, let me, let me, let me, let, let's, let's, let's keep on the plane. I don't, re I may be misremembering then. I thought you were saying that you were going to be home in Brampton. Uh, I, I, otherwise, I wouldn't. Have, I'm not sure I would have known where you lived. But um, maybe you said to me at one point or another that you were going to be in Dublin having a pint. Um, and if I wasn't the only one pushing you to get on a plane, well, God bless other reporters and for calling you. Calling oh, Murray, well. I don't doubt. But having said that, yeah. it was, well, I was just saying, it was a remarkable 
uh, it was a remarkable evening. I, I still would tell stories about that evening that we we get on a plane and there's there's you know it's pretty empty. There's only about well 25, 30 people on this this huge plane, um, and um, you know the the pilot was the chief pilot of United Airlines, and um, and most of the other passengers were United uh, employees who were deadheading back to London or to get on flights coming home. Um, it was a it was quite a remarkable um, evening, and and as the witching hour neared, I think about an hour, an hour and a half into the into the departure from from Chicago, um, thus pretty much over Toronto, um, I. Uh, I did have a little bit of a. Well, <laughs> I hope this isn't going to end badly. And then when it passed, um, with uh, utter calmness, and the pilot said, "We're we're still here," and you said something, I'm officially unemployed now. That I and uh, and and uh, and we we had I I did a quick interview with you, and then I wrote. Uh, the rest of the story, you know, the, the earlier, the later paragraphs are written before I left Toronto, but the top of the paragraph that we didn't die, I wrote it there and uh, phoned it in from um, the onboard uh, phone at untold expense. Uh, I don't know how many dollars a minute it was. And then when we finally, when I finally finished that, I came and sat beside you and um, and uh, flight attendants were everywhere, and it was a damn good party. There was, I say, what, 25, 30, 40 of us, and, and there was an immense amount of, of uh, wine flowing, and it was New Year's Eve. What, what The best party I've ever been to. <laughs> Do you remember the, um, I was getting, not text messages, but I was getting phone calls and messages from the captain, and in various ways, do you remember the sale of the the website? Because that's the night we got the message on that, I believe. You've been offered a certain amount of money for it, as I recall. Right. And I don't I don't remember the details of it though. Well, we put it up on eBay. And uh, did you sell it that night? No. Uh, there were bids, and I believe the the highest bid. This is now from memory. It is most probably incorrect. But the bid, I believe, the final bid was about two or three million dollars. And I remember stating, I don't believe a word of it. It's a scam bid. And I was basing that on the nature of how the bidding went. And while I suspect there may have been a few legitimate bids in the beginning, that whoever was scamming it uh, pushed those aside. And that, again, was done to communicate that Y2K is over. That's why we put it up for sale. So when we received that bid, yeah. uh, I knew it was fake. I didn't all of a sudden become an unemployed millionaire. That was not the way that went down. Uh, a couple of years later, on uh, Ben Stein's Money, they, the quiz show, they had a question, which site was sold for $2 million? And the answer was the year2000.com website. My son was watching the show and turned to me and said, Dad, where's the money? Because that was the answer. Uh, except it was wrong. <laughs> well, it wasn't me bidding up the price. Let's put it that way. No, you were busy drinking champagne. 
Okay. January the 1st comes along. I was indeed. We land in Heathrow. And as they say, we'll use the phrase that's uh, in the narrative, nothing happened. What were your thoughts? Oh, I I would say I had, I had a sense of relief, but that if I said that, that would mean that I had heightened um, fears. And I didn't really have heightened fears for mm -hmm. the reasons we've discussed. I trusted you when you said that, that uh, the mitigation had worked. I thought... I'm on the plane with you. You would not do this if you weren't 99.99% um, confident. So relief would be misplaced. I I felt a um, you know for my own my own uh, self interest. I felt that well, I was glad that I had pulled it off. That I'd managed to file a story from a plane 30,000 feet in the air, and um, and that I was out of touch with the newsroom, and they couldn't. They couldn't get a hold of me, and it wasn't that great. And uh, I could get to London, so I got to London, checked into an airport hotel, and I was kind of tired, and I was probably a little bit drunk by that time. And I just kind of put my head on the pillow and and crashed out for five or six hours. And um, and when I woke up January first, I just kind of got up and took the uh, took the tube down to. Um, to the embankment to see what this Millennium Wheel was all about, and then went and had lunch and dinner with a friend, and uh, came back to the hotel and flew home, and that was my little adventure in London. And I, you know, frankly, Peter, I thought that would be the end of the story. If I'd known, if I'd known then, and I probably did, that you were selling your website, I would have thought that you would concluded that that this was the end of the story, um, and that I didn't really have to save any files on this or save any tape recordings. I thought, well, this was good. It was great fun. What's next? Mm -hmm. You're aware of the problems that we had this year? Well, you've, yes, you've enlightened me on, 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 um, on some of them. Um, uh, it's, it, they seem rooted in the same uh, problem is that, which is that, Computer programs seem to be inclined to take shortcuts and are perhaps lazy. You come out of that industry, perhaps you can tell me whether that's wrong or not, but they, they seem inclined to do quick fixes and shortcuts. Is that, is that the issue? That is the nature of our business. We never really solved Y2K. And the problems that we saw this year, and I'll do a quick recap, is we had the New York City parking meters, 14,000 of them stopped, create, stopped accepting credit cards uh, January 2020. We had Polish cash registers throughout the country in Poland uh, stop working properly. And they had to the point where they had to be sent back to the store to be fixed and then sent back to the, the, the retailers. And then in Belgium, we had 95 trains that stopped working. And every one of these is a Y2K problem. Now, getting back to some of our other discussions earlier, they were all reported as Y2K-like problems, sort of pushing it away and say, well, this isn't a Y2K problem. It's, it's sort of like a Y2K problem. And in that, they're absolutely missing the boat. And what happened was we were using a sliding window technique here I'm getting into the jargon again, right? We're using a technique that was making assumptions about the year. And the assumptions were set up so that until the year 2020, they would work. 
And ideally, they needed to be, we needed to have gone back into them and fixed them, but we didn't. And lo and behold, we had more problems this year. We had more problems this year than we did in the year 2000. And one of the thoughts that goes through my mind and the minds of several others, including John Koskinen, if the problems that we'd had this year had happened in the year 2000, the narrative would not be that nothing happened. There would have been an acceptance that the problem was real and that we actually did our job. And with everything else going on. There's a difference in scale between um, parking meters in New York City and and uh, nuclear power plants and, and airliners and uh, that sort of thing. So we, we, we can, I'm sure New Yorkers are grateful that they didn't have they were their credit cards weren't being charged for 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 parking and that there's there's a degree of danger missing there some somehow. Um, but you know, let me let me ask you that this question. I mean, it's a it's a it seems to be an issue of when one nine tur turns into two zero. Um, what did the the major players the the electricity system the airlines what did they do right in 99 that it didn't um, didn't reoccur with them in the past year? Oh, there, was, there were various types of ways to do the sliding window that it could be self-correcting. It would update itself every year. So the window kept sliding forward. Uh, there was fixed windows, sliding windows. I mean, there are all different types of technical ways to approach this. And what happened was is that some of the changes made needed to be updated, and they weren't. Other organizations haven't had problems. I mean, the banks haven't had issues. There have been little glitches here and there, but nothing significant. And the reality, I mean, you mentioned nuclear power plants and planes and everything. And the reality is we found problems in nuclear power plants and we fixed them. We found problems in navigation systems in airlines and we fixed them. And we fixed them during all the remediation. And this was the whole point. If we hadn't done the remediation, then those things I've just mentioned would have been issues, something to discuss in the year 2000. So a lot of the danger stuff we identified in advance. I mean, there were other stories in the year 2000 that never really saw the media. The, the NORAD, the missile defense system in the States was down, quote unquote, uh, for three days. It wasn't working properly for three days. That wasn't highlighted. Uh, mm. There was no advantage to highlighting that. Uh, it would actually show, it would be a national no. security issue. What did we learn? What did the media <laughs> learn from So I don't, I... Go ahead. Oh, the media never learns. The media never learns. The media never forgets. Um, we, I mean, I think in, as, as business operations who are reliant on computers for their own uh, continuance for this back office circulation or, or um, you know, we scribes using laptops in the field, they learned that they should had to pay some attention to um, the, the issue out there and, and the mitigation uh, of it. But in terms of, of a story and how we sold it, I think, you, I don't think anybody sat around on January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th and said, well, did we um, did we make fools of ourselves in this, or did we just make the order a rich man or whatever like that? Because I think 
I, I think in terms of the globe, we we didn't we didn't go overboard. We we publicized the issue. We gave it a fair amount of ink, but we didn't we weren't alarmist about it, nor were we nor were we dismissive about it. So I can't speak for all the media, but I think that uh, I don't remember any great postmortem at the globe where we were embarrassed about well, what we did. I wasn't embarrassed about what I had done mm -hmm. during the year. I, I um, and you know, and frankly, it's when you're working in a daily newspaper. Once that day's paper is out, it's a new day. You look, yeah. you look forward. You rarely, rarely look back. That's for journalists and professors to. Uh, to uh, analyze what you, what you did um, when you're actually in the business. You don't spend a lot of time, maybe, maybe this is wrong, but you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the larger issues of what you do. Do you see any parallels with how Y2K was covered by the media in general, not just the globe, and how the coronavirus is being covered, for example? Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think, it, it, and this, again, this is one of those issues in which, you know, the reporters and editors who are are generalists, their instinct is to go find people who know lots of stuff, smart people who know lots of stuff, um, and take what you find from there. I mean, I think we're all now, we all have PhDs in uh, virology. Uh, from what we've learned in the past two weeks. Um, and the job of a reporter is to take what they can glean from microbiologists or whatever and throw it to people who actually have control over the larger issues, politicians, leaders, um, and say, what are you doing about this? And again, I don't think, um, I don't think, as I've watched the media on the, and I'm out of the game right now, so I'm not, I don't have to be defensive. I don't think there's been a lot of alarmism. I think this story has crept up um, on us as, as I told you before we started talking, um, I, I flew willingly to Victoria on March 10th. Um, it was somewhere in my back of my mind. I knew there was a um, there was an issue with um, the coronavirus, but it, it hadn't broken through into a major issue. I asked my wife. I said, "Do you think I should go?" I was going out to visit a friend who hasn't been well, and she said, "Yes, go, go, go. Yeah, you want to see him?" And um, I was there for two or three days, and all of a sudden, the level of alarm about the pandemic rose and within two or three days I was making arrangements to come back because all of a sudden I became aware of how serious and how cute this issue was. My point is that I, until that time, until we started to see the, the uh, exponential increase in deaths and uh, confirmed cases around the world, that I don't think the media was being terribly alarmist. Maybe it's because we were able to combine it. We, they were able to combine it to, to, to China and Japan and then laterally to, to, to Italy. Um, so I, and I, I, so I think the same, the same root um, workings of the media are at play right now in the sense that we don't know anything. You go to find out people who know stuff 
find out what they have to say and then you bounce it off other people and you eventually try and hold to account uh, the people who have control over our lives, you know, and um, uh, yeah, so I mean, that's that's what I sense is playing out in the media right now. Okay. Interesting. It's interesting to hear the media perspective on it. I mean, it's one thing to read articles about it. It's another one to hear the conversation behind the articles, which is what I was looking for in this presentation, which we've more than gotten. Any closing thoughts on the whole Y2K escapade? Well, I mean, I guess two, two things. So just bear in mind that reporters are rarely experts. Mm -hmm. And you might feel you're talking down to us by eliminating all the sharp edges of your of your analysis. We don't feel that at all until we do feel you're talking down to us, of course. <laughs> but we don't feel that at all. We, we, we think we think that you're trying to you're being uh, respectful of our ignorance and are trying to explain it to us in a way that we can understand. I mean there's generalism gets a bad rap sometimes, but Reporters as generalists are, are all you got, really. I mean, you, you can, I guess you could have PhDs in computer science um, writing your newspaper, but at some point, somebody's got to explain it to the vast readership out there that doesn't have a PhD in, um, in uh, computer science. So, I mean, that's, that's the one thing. I mean, it, it, you, can, you simplify your message so much that it makes you kind of gag that you're simplifying it so much. But we don't feel that at all. We think that you're you're um, you're talking to us at a level uh, that we understand. You know, politicians will say this. Well, most politicians will say that they go out with their their messages, their message track, their two or three things they have to say, and they say it again and again and again until they think they're fit, going to be physically ill if they have to say it one more time, mm -hmm. and then they realize. It's just at that point that people are listening. That's just the way of the world. And and the second thing I guess I guess is the, it's related. I mean, it's never um, it's never bad for any group of people with incredibly uh, arcane knowledge to think about that, which is. Um, Try and communicate. Try and think. What, what am I, aunt and uncle, and Capus casing thinking about this? You know, what? How can I explain it to them in ways that, that they understand? I mean, that's why there's legions of communications professionals out there. But uh, if you haven't got access to your own, um, it's worth it's worth anybody with any expertise to go back over their messaging and saying, is this, is this something that everybody else understands, or, or am I speaking only to my uh, only to my colleagues and my peer group. So, I resonate with your comments. I gave over the span of the problem. I gave more than two thousand media interviews, and I got sick and tired at the sound of my own voice. I honestly and truly did. I was repeating yeah. the same stuff over and over and over again. I got so weary of it, and yet it needed to be done. Uh, we didn't turn yeah. down a single phone call yeah. or request for an interview. It had to be done. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, you sound like an author coming back from a book tour, you know, 
fed up with their book, fed up with their own personality, you know, fed up with hotel rooms. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and jet lag and everything else. Murray, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Uh, we won't let everybody know how long it took us to do it and how many technical problems we had. They weren't Y2K related, which is the good news. Uh, if you want to say goodbye, Murray, uh, say more embarrassing to you than it is. Go ahead. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on. I thank you so much for having me on. I, I enjoyed talking with you 20 years ago and i enjoyed renewing our conversation today super guy we'll get together for a beer in the near future let me close out everybody this is uh, peter diago well, well i was gonna say in the near future who knows but <laughs> that's that's true no pubs anyway this is y2k and autobiography this is one of a series of interviews that we've been doing my name is peter diago uh you can contact me at peter diago uh, sorry P Diager, P D E J A G E R at Technobility, T E C H N O B I L I T Y dot com. And if you want to access the premium data, which is where you are now, sort of, www.vimeo.com slash on demand slash Y2K. And here's a promo code you can pass along to your friends and everybody else if you want them to hear some of this stuff. Uh, the promo code for the on-demand stuff is Y2KDAGER, D-E-J-A-G-E-R. Thanks again, everybody. And uh, there'll be another one dropping in about a week. Take care. Thanks again, Murray. Be good. Bye.